As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome back to Power Hour, the Athletics Tuesday National College Football Podcast, hosted by yours truly, Nicole Auerbach. And I am thrilled for a first-time co-host and guest. Um, It is our new colleague and longtime friend, Sam Kahn. Sam, thanks for joining the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. The Texpert, which I will, <laughs> are you are you tired of saying that yet? Because I, I kind of still love it. As a- I'm not actually, believe it or not. Uh, we have definitely toned down how much we use it the last month or so, just to not overload people and make people despise it. But uh, because we've been a little measured about it the last month or so, I I am still enjoying it. I'm sure there will come a time where I get tired of it, but so far I am enjoying the label. Okay, well, I don't think you could overuse it from my perspective. Um, I think it's very creative. Obviously, it's pretty obvious. Sam is our Texas expert um, on all schools, Texas. And we're going to get into that because um, Sam has a great piece about recruiting starting up again, and it's definitely Texas flavored. Um, But we will get into that in just a second. Power Hour, as always, is breaking down the biggest storylines in college sports in an hour or less. Just a reminder, if you enjoy the podcast, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Andy Staples and Friends show. Five stars, because much like your favorite recruits who can now visit schools again, we would like to make an immediate impact. Um, So Sam, happy end of the dead period. It's been many, many months. We're here, finally, 14 and a half months. It's uh, March 13th, 2020. It's the last time that people, actually March 12th, the day before, I guess 13th was the start of the period, but last time that recruits could visit. And guess what? Mike Norvell wasted no time getting recruits on campus last night at midnight Eastern. That was pretty creative. You know, I'd seen some of the Florida State assistants like on the hour tweeting about, you know, like counting down to midnight. And I was like, oh, you know, I wonder if they're going to do something. Yep, they were going to welcome people exactly at midnight, make a big show of it. Coaches and prospects have been waiting for this day. I mean, I was thinking back about the D1 council meeting a couple months ago when everyone got really pissed that this got extended again. And I remember at that point, everyone was like, listen, it's going to expire May 31st. It's We just need to come up with a plan. We just need to you know kind of set that up. And there really actually isn't a transition period, right? Like, it's just... 
back to what it normally would be in June? Yeah, it's normally you would have. So what we missed in this last extension was the spring evaluation period, which starts April 15th, goes to May 31st. That's when the assistant coaches can go out to high school spring practices or track meets or whatever you whatever is going on in the spring to go evaluate these guys. But June 1st is the start of camp season, and that's exactly what we're doing now. We got camps and, of course, unofficial and official visits, which would be normal also. So I think that was a smart decision on the NCAA's part. I know we don't always say that, but or the Division One Council, but to get back to the normal calendar, because the one thing I was afraid of was them going to some sort of hybrid calendar in the summer where we got rid of the early July dead period, and then all of a sudden you had people recruiting throughout the entire summer and nobody taking a vacation. I think... It was important to get back to the normal calendar. Let's do things the way we have always done. And I think largely everything is the same except for one small waiver that they've given for recruits to do a workout on unofficial visits. But uh, other than that, it is pretty much the same as it normally would be. Okay, so we're recording this June 1st, 2021. This is the day, the literal day that everyone can start recruiting. You can take visits to campus. Camps can happen again. Um I want to get into this story that you wrote, Sam, that was great, about Burt Emanuel Jr. and just sort of like this prism of what it's been like to be a prospect, um, particularly a quarterback prospect, during virtual recruiting. But let's go back through the 13 and a half months um, that have preceded today. When you don't have in-person recruiting, what happens? Like, what has this looked like? Why has this been such a flashpoint? So for one thing, it doesn't impact the four and five star kids. It impacts the borderline kids like Bert Emanuel Jr. He he's right now unranked in the two four seven composite. He has two offers, one FCS offer and then an offer from Army. These are the guys it impacts the most for two reasons. One, you can't get an eye on them. Two, as many transfers as guys are taking. You can grade those transfers against college video as opposed to the high school kids you haven't seen in person, which seems like a more sure bet. And so it counts as an initial counter against your your scholarship limit every year, which is 25. So that's one less guy that you can take. And guys are going to be – when you look at a quarterback like Emmanuel, offensive coaches are going to be more hesitant to take a guy if they haven't seen them throw live. Now, obviously, in this – Last 14 months, they haven't been able to see anybody live from a high school standpoint. So I guess everybody's on an even playing field from that regard. But if you have a question mark about a guy, you're probably going to err on the side of not offering because the quarterback is the one position that can get you in trouble if you get it wrong. And the other thing that I've seen that has been a big impact for guys of Emmanuel's caliber, regardless of position, is one thing you would notice is, especially during the spring evaluation period, coaches go out to high schools and they want to go see the five-star, the four-star kid. So when you go out to, let's say, down here in Houston, Cypress Park High School, Harold Perkins, five-star linebacker. So I go see him, but they have a bunch of other guys on that team. So while I'm here watching practice, if I'm an assistant, I'm going to jot in my notes and say, oh, this linebacker looks good. Or this receiver looks good. And I'm going to ask the coach about him. I'm going to get a transcript on him. And I'm going to wonder why maybe he hasn't gotten as much attention. And this is how you discover these under-the-radar guys that end up becoming an eventual Power 5 prospect and eventually becoming an FBS prospect. And that, to me, is what has been missing in a big part of these last 14 months is those under-the-radar guys not getting a chance to impress guys in person. I feel like with the 2021 class, we heard a lot about the transfer thing, like just picking a guy that had film. 
Was it Jake Spavital who took all transfers? Yeah. Yeah, he took all but one, I think. Yeah, they took one high school guy and the rest were transfers. So I know that that's, that's an overall concern coming out of this, right? Especially with the 22 class too. Do you think it'll be as prevalent as 21? That's the question is, I think for some schools it will be. You know, I talked to Dana Holgerson a couple months ago. He said he feels like half or more than half of his class in 22 is going to be transfers as opposed to high school guys. The the level of program, I think, that is going to lean on that are not the Alabamas, the Clemsons, Ohio States, because they can still get their pick of the top high school kids. But your Texas Tech, who is way out in Lubbock, which is kind of difficult to get to if you're in Houston or uh, Dallas or Austin, it's it's not as easy to get there. Uh, Houston is a group of five program that's not going to get the five-star kid or the high four-star kid traditionally. Uh, those are the type of programs that I think are going to lean on that because when you have coaches who are on such a short clock in terms of needing to win and the pressure, are you going to take the chance on the high school kid who you've only seen a little bit of and maybe a project you have to develop? Or are you going to take a chance on this guy who I know has played Division One football or played fire football and I know what he can do? And I think you're going to see those level of programs probably gamble on the transfers more often than not, at least in the short term. The question I have is long term, is this a thing that is here to stay or is it just right now because of the circumstances? Yeah, I think that's the more interesting question coming out of this because I feel like we've kind of been circling around the same conversation ever since grad transfers became a thing, especially even with quarterbacks, because we've seen programs like I'm thinking about my alma mater at Michigan get stuck in the situation where if you take a grad transfer quarterback, then the other guys leave. So then you have to take one again the next year. So then you kind of get in this cycle where you have to take transfers because you can't develop them because they know that they just got leapfrogged. So it, it almost seems like it's hard to get out of, but you're right where like if you're trying to develop a program and build, you have to do it on the bedrock of high school guys, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, th- I liken it to, and, and I've mentioned this before, I liken the recruiting and transfer portal, whereas high school recruiting is the NFL draft, essentially, and the portal is your free agency. And... Guys are building rosters. I, I don't think a ton of teams are building rosters for four years anymore. Obviously, your top programs still can. But a lot of these programs are now starting to look one only one to two years out because the roster changes so quickly in that span of time. And with the one-time transfer rule passing, that impacts. So I think you take the high school guy, and that's going to be mostly your developmental guys. You'll have a few instant – if you get some five-stars or high four-stars with your instant, instant impact guys – but the rest of them are going to probably be developmental. They're going to be guys that you, okay, we probably retro them a year or they play just a little bit and then we hope that they can play a role in year two, year three. And then the transfers become the instant impact guys. I, I don't think that's going to be everybody does it that way, but I think that's kind of the approach we're starting to take now. Yeah, and just as a, a teaser for listeners, Max Olson and I are going to be kind of diving into this a little bit as well. There's a lot of, there's a lot of angles on this, but the idea of that 25-man cap and how you're going to allocate it. And are coaches going to save spots for transfers? Are places that are going to say, like, hey, we're really not building on transfers. We're only going to, you know, we're still going to sign 20 high school guys, 23, whatever it might be. Um, that's going to be a major thing moving forward. And then if they adjust that number. Um, so keep an eye out from from something on, on Max and myself r- related to that. But Sam, I wanted to go through this story that you told um, about Bert Emanuel Jr. I thought he really was 
you know, kind of this is perfect symbol of everything that's happening right now. How did you find him? How did he get on your radar as an un, unranked uh, quarterback prospect? So one of the first things I did on uh, upon me taking the job here was they had an event, the Elite 11 hosts regionals for quarterback prospects around the country. So they had one down in Katy, which is just west of Houston, back in March. And I went and Bernie Manuel had the best combine score of all the prospects. Uh, and of course, he is the son of Bert Emanuel, the receiver who played for Tampa Bay Bucks, was a guy who was a star down here at Rice University. Uh, so Bert, Bert's a really known name down here. So his son, first of all, the thing was, oh, Bert Emanuel's son's playing. I, now I feel kind of old because I remember when, <laughs> when Bert Emanuel played at the NFL when he played uh, college football. But it, he had the highest combine score and I went and looked up you know, his profile, his offer list. And he had one offer at the time. It was from TSU, Texas Southern University, down here in Houston. And I looked at his size, his athleticism, the way he threw the ball that day looked pretty good to me. And so I started calling and asking around. I started calling guys who knew, hey, what's what's the deal with this guy? Why does he not have a little bit more attention? Because he's about 6'2 and a half, 6'3. He's about 200 pounds. He throws the ball really well. He runs really well. You look up his video. It's, it's impressive the way he's able to... Uh, run past defenders and shed tackles. And so I'm wondering why doesn't he have any offers? And so I called some college coaches and asked, and some guys liked him. Some guys were, eh, they were, they were not so hot. But the consensus was, we want to see him throw in camp. We would, we would love to see him throw in camp. And if, if we can get some questions answered about what we think or what we may not know about his throwing motion and how big is he really? Is he really what he's listed. Cause that's one thing I think that's been challenging in this, in this dead period is getting verified data, getting verified 40 times, verified heights and weights. Because when you come to a camp or you come to an unofficial visit, the coaches can do that. Or if they come out to your school, they can do that. Well, you can't do that in the last 14 months because it's, there's been no in-person contact. So that's kind of how I found him. And, and I thought he would, like you said, was the perfect symbol for why in-person recruiting matters so much because he's a guy that I think if the spring evaluation period went on, he probably would have picked up some offers over the last six weeks. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Did he really say that the first question that he's been getting is, how tall are you? That he had to literally take a photo (laughs) of himself next to a doorframe? Did he really do this? Well, not the first question, but it is. I asked him, what's the most frequent question he got? And that is definitely it. Yeah. And so, and he's not the only one. I had written a story back in March about some underrated prospects in the state. Van Wells, a center down here at C.E. King, he's also one of those under the radar types. So he has many more offers than Bernie Manuel. He started to rise up in the last few months. His coach told me, yes, 
because people keep asking me if my center is 6'3", I take a video of me taking a measurement of him and I'm sending it to coaches. I've heard coaches say that they have prospects stand next to stacks of cinder blocks because you know how tall the cinder blocks are. Uh, I've had coaches say they're going to have them take a measurement of their wingspan. Uh, Hoover High in Alabama had an entire pro day last year with parents and everybody involved filming. And Mike Bloomgren, the rice coach, told me that when they filmed the player's height, you could see the feet on the ground so that they could verify on video that it is the actual height. And they videoed them stepping on scales so that you could see that, yes, we're not doctoring his weight. It's actually this player stepping on the scale. This is what the scale actually reads, and this is what he actually weighs. These are the links that people have had to go in the lack of in-person recruiting in the last 14 months. What are other – I know in the article you kind of mentioned um, that – some of these college coaches were talking, like you just mentioned, Bloomgren, but there were some of the college coaches talking about what some of these high schools have done to try to to give that information. So they're, they're, what else are they doing? I know you, you mentioned that they're filming practice from behind the quarterback. Um, like, how else are they trying to give you some of those data? I mean, I guess like a 40 times, some of that stuff is is just numbers, but like I'm sure – seeing how a guy throws that's that's a video clip like what other what other things have people done to try to get creative here yeah the the video part was interesting i never thought of that until uh shannon dawson the offensive coordinator at houston mentioned this to me that some schools have done a pro day for their quarterbacks like i mentioned with the hoover or they've done some specifically for quarterbacks where they run a script and they would do it like a college pro day that you would do for the draft and if you were a coach you're standing a few yards behind the quarterback to watch him so they would put the camera up five, 10 yards behind the quarterback so that you could see the angle. Is it the same? No, but it's a pretty decent substitute in place of that. The other thing is I mentioned in this story was one thing, the verified data is the hardest part. So the coaches have relied a lot on things like the elite 11 on the elite underclassmen camp that the UC report does any of these camps that do video and electronic times on forties or shuttles Anything that can be verified, they, they send the video of that and the data of that to the college clients, and they've relied on that. The other thing that's been big, and this has always, I think, been something that coaches have used, but even more so they've relied upon during the pandemic, is track. If you are a athlete and you run the 100, the 200, uh, the 4 by one if you run a, a state track meet or a regional track meet, it's going to be a fully automatic time. And that is probably the gold standard of times because a hand time doing a 40, you know, we're not necessarily all going to hit that button at the same time. So one coach may have a four five, one coach may have a four four. And it's hard to get a consensus on that unless you're timing it yourself and you trust yourself. But a fully automatic track time, that's going to be the same pretty much anywhere you go. So if a kid runs a 10-3, 100-meter dash, you can rely and be very be comfortable that that's a really good, a really fast prospect. Some of us hate running and are not track <laughs> people. So this would be this, this would be a, a disadvantage. Um, one other thing, because again, you're our tech expert. So um, there's always this great Texas flavor in your stories. And you had a lot of really interesting insight, I thought, from the head coaches in the state about Dave Aranda, Baylor coach, was really insightful about the process that they've been taking over the last 14 months. Um, you, you've kind of talked about this, right? About how, like, if people aren't sure with a quarterback, they they withhold the offer and kind of just wait and see. But I, I, I feel like he had basically as good a plan as anybody in terms of, like, what you're talking about, about verifying information, going to high school coaches. Um, 
did everyone have a strategy like that where it was kind of it sounded like he was basically just like checking off a checklist to go through this process to like kind of verify that what he thinks he feels about a player is accurate yeah in texas i think that's pretty much the standard process you go through is okay we see the we see the film initially we like them call the high school coach down here in texas the texas high school coaches have a lot of power and influence probably more so than than almost any other state in the country when it comes to recruiting so there's a very big deal of when I'm interested in a prospect, I'm going to reach out to that prospect's high school coach first. So that's the, the first step after you like the film. Then you talk to the counselors, you talk to teachers, talk to people within the school. And then the interesting part, and I didn't think about this, but it makes sense, is they, Baylor does a written evaluation in the same way that NFL teams would do a written evaluation of their draft prospects. And they'll do that. Then they'll do their own cut up of a film, which I, certainly I think that's probably something that other people do, but I, that's something I wasn't, I didn't know about. I didn't know that people did their own cut ups of them. And then we're going to see the data. Okay. What do we have on 40 time? What do we have on vertical? What do we have on shuttle? What do we have on, you know, weightlifting times, power clean bench, all that good stuff. If you can get those verified, and like Dave Miranda said, then we feel good. Okay, let's offer them. If we cannot get that verified, then let's not because we we haven't been able to meet the kid. Because again, if you're able to meet the kid, you can do that. Number one, but number two, if you meet the kid, you get a feel for him. You get a you get to understand what he's like. How does he react? How does he compete? You know, how does all that stuff go? And in the absence of that, that again brings that uncertainty. And I think one thing that we found that coaches, the coaches are often risk averse. And so the best no, any way you can min- no, it's your, oh dear, how could you say that? And Dave Miranda's a guy that punted from the plus thirty last year, which made me want to scream. But uh, I love you, Dave. But I, uh, I, but so if so if they the, the less the more uncertainty you have, the less likely you are to take a chance on the guy again because this is the, these guys are going to equate to wins and losses for these coaches, and so and if that's going to affect their livelihood, they're going to be absolutely certain before they offer a guy. So one other piece of this that I think is, is, is worth pointing out is, um, you know, I've talked to Shane Lyons a lot. He was the chair of the Football Oversight Committee. And them, the AFCA, the Coaches Association, various coaches who are pretty involved in rule stuff, have all pretty much acknowledged that there's going to be some element of virtual recruiting moving forward. Like there's going to be an element of a hybrid model because there have been some benefits, I think, of the FaceTimes and the Zooms. Certainly for schools where it's really expensive or hard to travel. Um, I, I think in general, if you have less restrictions on like, let's say you were only able to talk to someone five days a month, but it was unlimited during virtual, maybe you do feel like you could build a relationship. It's definitely different than getting a feel for someone in person. But I do think there's going to be some element of that coming out of it. And I think depending on the coaches you talk to, they did feel like they could build some relationships or or they did feel like they could get some sense of them. And then there's others who are like, listen, there's going to be a lot of transfers out of this class because you didn't. It's not the same. So I'm really curious to see how that plays out with um, with guys that you basically had to just learn via FaceTime and via Zoom. Because, I mean, we've been doing our jobs this way for the last year. And, like, it's there are certain people that we've known before, and it's a little easier. But then there's there's people I've only literally ever met through Zoom, and it's it's very different. So I'm so curious to see, you know, a year from now, two years from now, like what the transfer rate is too, especially with the one-time transfer. I think that's something else that coaches are thinking about, like not just transfers in, but sort of like, okay, if some of these guys aren't going to work, like we're going to lose a fair amount of them because 
we may not want them. They may not want to be here. They may want to go closer to home. They may want to go further from home. Like all of that piece is also been kind of stilted because you can't visit. So do you even know if you want to be near home? Do you want to be within driving distance? Like all of that stuff is also going to come into play. And so like, I'm very curious a year from now, two years from now, what the transfer rates are. I assume that they're going to be higher than usual. Yeah, I feel the same way. And I think that's, to me, the most fascinating part of it is how much, how many of these kids are going to get some, get to their campus and figure out this is not a fit. This is not what I thought it was going to be because you didn't get the chance to officially visit. Some of these kids went on their own and did their own visits and went around the campus and, and all that good stuff, but they didn't get the, the true unofficial or official visit that you would get where you meet all the coaches and you attend a game and all that. And you have the behind the scenes look at the game where you may have been able to go sit in the stands of the game, but you didn't get to go meet with the coaches afterwards like you normally would. It, we already saw one at Texas A&M, Shadrick Banks, the four-star running back from North Shore. He he left right after spring football. He was he was committed for quite some time, and after three months, he figured out it wasn't a fit, and he it wasn't what he thought it was going to be. He wasn't going to get on the field as quickly as he thought, and so he transferred to TCU. Uh, to that point, David Randa told me he said he's got guys enrolling this week that he's never met before. That that to me is incredible. The other thing, the other aspect of that, I think is fascinating is. How many of these guys, because of the lack of verified data, because of the lack of in-person recruiting, are going to arrive on campus and coaches look at them and say, oh, wow, we missed on that kid. And that happens in every class. But especially, I think the hit rate on evaluation of some of these prospects is going to be wildly different this time around because you're going to have some guys who you thought were really good and you did all the due diligence you could, but you never got to see them in person, and they're not as good as they turned out to be. And on the flip side, and I've talked to coaches about this, is there's going to be some guys who maybe went to programs, maybe group of five programs, that are probably power five level prospects, but because the power five programs maybe weren't as certain about them, they didn't offer them, and they're going to have some group of five programs are going to have some really, really good high-level players that are traditionally out of their league because they didn't get to explode because people didn't get to see them in person. Oh, so are you saying then we might have more talk about how everyone's just going to pluck the group of five <laughs> players with the transfer rules? Like how they're just going to eventually end up at Alabama anyway? Um, oh, man. I, do, do you get the sense? I mean, it's, it's been such an omnipresent thing, this transfer rule change. Um, and obviously players have been transferring since December, assuming that they'd get to play right away. Have coaches just kind of started to deal with it or are they still like the sky is falling? Cause I, I feel like my conversations, it's a little bit of both, but I, I do feel like it's a little bit less sky is falling because they know that they're going to benefit from it too. I definitely feel that way. I, some of them are still decrying it. I think it's overblown to call this the end of college football or what have you. It, I, I get annoyed when people use the term free agency pejoratively. I don't think it's a bad thing. If a kid wants to move, he doesn't like his situation and he wants to go to another school, what's wrong with that? I don't have a problem with that. And certainly there are plenty of coaches that are going to have a spot for him waiting. Now, I understand people talking about the kids that jump in the portal and don't have anywhere to go. That's a legitimate concern. But let's not pretend that the coaches care about all those kids. They care about the kids who can help them win, by and large. And so... I think it's a little bit overblown, the overreaction to it. And I think coaches have adjusted to it. You saw Texas, Steve Sarkeesian, they've taken a lot of transfers in the last few months after spring practice because they figured out uh, where they are 
weak, where they're thin at, at certain positions, and they've got to address that. And at the same time, when you get your guys go, when you get your quarterback and you pick your quarterback and the other ones transfer out, you got to fill those spots, and, and that's the quickest way to do it. So I think coaches have adjusted, and I think just like anything, it may be painful and they may cry about it a little bit, but they'll get used to it and we'll all move on. And a couple of years from now, this won't be a big deal. That's how I also feel about NIL, which mm-hmm. they also like to complain about. Um, <laughs> I don't even know if all of them understand like that it's third-party endorsements, not through the school. That's a separate conversation. We've been talking a lot about NIL lately because it's been such a big deal. Let's flip through and let's just lay out what, what the month of June is going to look like for coaches and these prospects, too, like um, like our guy Emmanuel. So they're able to do unofficial visits. They're able to go to camps. I know that there are mega camps planned. SMU is having one. Is that right? Yeah, they have 65 schools are going to be there. Okay. So these <laughs> are all going to be happening. People are not going to be sleeping. We already saw Mike Norvell and the Florida State staff starting literally at midnight um, as June 1st hit. So... What is what does now that everyone's able to evaluate like what how how do you envision this playing out over the next month outside of just a lack of sleep for everybody? Yeah, it's going to be a sprint. It's, you have some schools are going to go heavy on camp. So I, I look at Texas; they've got ten camps this month, which is kind of a lot. <laughs> Normally during a during a June, you would have three or four, but I think you're making up for lost time. A and M has eight, but I look at Baylor. Baylor has four camps, and. In the mix of the, in the middle of those, you're going to have unofficial visitors come on campus, and then you're going to have actual official visit weekends, which I think is really important. It's really critical for these programs that have guys either committed or they're close to it. Guys are getting close to making their decisions. A lot of prospects like to make their decisions before their senior season starts. So the, these official visits going on in the month of June are going to be really huge. Uh, for the prospects and for the schools themselves too. So it is going to be guys running around everywhere. But you're going to see a lot of offers go out because, again, schools are going to be able to get a look at a guy and say, yes, we like him. No, we don't. They'll make a decision and we'll offer. And so you're going to see tons of offers that go out in the month of June. And then you're also going to see, you'll probably see some commitments coming out of some of these unofficial and official visits. And then uh, and then everyone will probably go on vacation in July for a couple of weeks before media I, days. I think I think some coaches were, were cramming them in in, in May as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know a lot of staffs that, <laughs> took off the last week or two of May yeah. just in anticipation of this. Because you wouldn't normally because you'd be in spring evaluation period in May. But you, you weren't this year, so some staff took advantage of that. And I think that's really smart because it's gonna June is going to be a grind. Yeah, there was um, – I was at the Phoenix spring meetings and it's like Ryan Silverfield and some other coaches were just saying like, okay, we, we got we to gotta change everything up like where we normally would go. And, and like you mentioned, these coaches are creatures of habit, so they have – probably always taking vacation the same one or two weeks every single year of their entire careers and, and everything is off this year um, and everyone's probably fried too so it was it was definitely due do you, do you think that they're gonna need somebody to run around these camps um with like measuring tapes and you know everyone's <laughs> really concerned about heights and weights like I could be that person it would be you know get my steps in for the day run around with a with a yardstick yeah, no, I think I think that's that's standard operating procedure, and it's going to be plenty. There's going to be some busy GAs and volunteers and and students to to some extent at these camps because uh, they, they've got to get all those guys verified. But that's that's part of the that's part of what excites the coaches is hey, 
we can look at them, we can feel them out, shake their hand, talk to them, do the whole thing, and and get an idea if we if we really want this guy and if he's really as good as uh, his film and his uh, coaches say he is. So I think it, it's good, and I'm glad we got to this point because it is sorely needed in recruiting. And, and again, I could not imagine being a 17 or 18 year old high school senior making a decision on where to go to college without meeting the head coach I'm playing for or meeting the position coach I'm playing for. It's pretty wild to think about, but we've, that's part of the reality of the last 14 months. And I think, too, you know, as we've kind of talked about, like this quarterback prospect that you found is not a four or five star guy. It's not a can't miss guy. And when we think about recruiting a lot of times or or college football, we only think about the best. And it's these players that like getting a scholarship really matters and getting, you know, eventually working your way up to playing time really matters. And um, I, I just think it's important to think about those players when you think about camps and a lot of the players that we've seen come on really late, even like, you know, when you talk about like a Saquon Barkley and some of these players, they needed those opportunities to, to flash and to pop. And a lot of times they do something that no one really thought they could do at a camp. And that's where the coach pulls them aside and gives them an offer. Right. And like, that's what we're talking about when you talk about like what's been missing over the last 14 months. Yes, like an Arch Manning, like, yes, people know he's going to be really good. By the way, Jeff Duncan had a great story on him on The Athletic. But not everyone's like that. And I think that that's what has been missing and what is now gained when you think about, like, okay, what's changed? What's back? This is why that stuff matters, because those are the players that, you know, A, populate a lot of these rosters that we just don't think about all the time because they're not the top 5%. But also, you know, it, it's, it, it means a lot to, to get noticed. And there's just not a lot of situations where, like, the athlete has the empowerment to do something, like, to get noticed. Like, they can't make, offer themselves a scholarship. They can't create a rival's profile for themselves, right? Like, somebody has to do these things and identify them as a prospect first. So I, I just think that's something to keep in mind as we kind of get back into the swing of things. It's like it's not only about the five-star quarterbacks. They were going to get those offers anyway. It's about the guys like Burt Emanuel, um, which is why I just thought it was such a terrific piece. So if you haven't read it, um, check it out on The Athletic. Follow Sam for all the Texpert stuff. Um, and and make sure you're, you know, tracking on stories like that. And, and our, our colleagues, um, you know, everyone on this feed is familiar with Ari Wasserman. But Ari Wasserman and Bruce had a piece and Bruce Feldman had a piece up um, this week as well about coaches thinking about all this, recruiting directors thinking about all of this and what this next month is going to be like. Pat Fitzgerald told his wife he's not going to see her for a month. We already, again, <laughs> take a nice vacation when we are through June. Um, please to the Fitzgeralds. Um, but there's there's a lot of wrinkles to this and a lot of ways that this month is going to matter. And you know, we're going to talk about playoff expansion and NIL and all these other things. But this is one that really matters, too, about just how these programs build, how they look, um, how they're deciding to you know break up the roster between high school guys and transfers and what happens to those high school guys when, when they don't get scholarship offers. So um, I, I think it's all it's all connected and, and it's all really important. And I, I just think we just need to pay attention to the Berta manuals. I, I always I feel like sometimes we we forget who, you know, 90 percent of these rosters are. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. That's why I wanted to do this piece, and that's why I wanted to, to focus on a guy like him because, like you said, the vast majority of the recruits are guys like Bert Emanuel who are borderline. They're either unranked or two-star, three-star types, and they're the ones that make up the majority of these college rosters. The four- and five-stars are only a few hundred of them. So uh, the, the, the camps, like you, you're right, 
the camps are so huge for those guys. The four and five star guys don't have to go and, and perform typically at these camps. They don't want to. These are the guys who the camps are for. And this is why it's so important. June is so important for these groups of guys is they can go out and they can bet on themselves and do their performance and, and earn, you know, the offers that are going to come their way. All right, Sam, before we go, this is your first time on Power Hour, and we have this segment that we always do at the end. It's called Last Call. So it's either something that you want to cheers to that would be like the last call at a night out um, and you're excited about, or you just need to like get something off your chest because that also happens at the end of a night sometimes after a couple of beers. So um, I will go first because I feel like I have a take that is perfectly timed for having a text bird on here and also for coming off of Memorial Day weekend. My my cheer, actually, you know, what? It's, it's more of a rant. It's kind of in between. But what my last call is going to be about people who get mad about saying barbecue when they mean cookout. <laughs> so I got a lot of flack for this this weekend because I grew up, I'm going to blame my parents and the East Coast. They call it a barbecue, okay? And it's only <laughs> hot dogs and hamburgers. I understand it's not, the degree of difficulty is not very high, I understand that there's no smoking involved, there's no ribs, there's not like, you know, it didn't take eight hours to do this, but I grew up calling that a barbecue. My dad calls it a barbecue. I understand that it's literally just grilling like a couple of things. It takes like 10 minutes to do, Um, but I don't understand all of this hatred for calling it a barbecue. (laughs) I think it's a regional thing. I am not... Like, maybe if I grew up somewhere where like you labored and it was like an eight-hour event... And it was different, and you called these things differently. But I don't understand the hate, okay? I just, I'm, I'm from the East Coast, the Northeast, and my dad called it a barbecue. Let me live, okay? <laughs> oh, Nicole, I'm, I'm on Andy's side on this one. But I, I am not as infuriated by people who do it as Andy that's all, might That's get. all I'm asking for. That's, that's but, what I'm that's yeah, saying. At, my mother does it. My mother calls it barbecuing when it's ha- hot dogs and hamburgers. And I do not correct my mother, by the way. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, she, she brought me into this world. She could certainly take me out of it. Uh, but I understand where you're coming from. But I am definitely a guy who uses the terminology. I say cookout if it's a cookout. And I say barbecue if we're indirectly cooking meat over a smoker. Like that to me is barbecue. So I will say that here's what my rant will be. It will be along those lines. And I'm glad you brought this up because we are coming into a prime barbecue time. Please, people, stop posting pictures of your terrible brisket. Lincoln Riley did this (laughs) a couple of months ago. And I know Twitter can be ruthless, especially barbecue Twitter. But just take a look at what real good brisket looks like and understand that whatever dry hunk of meat that you screwed up in your backyard is not worth posting on Instagram or Twitter or whatever other social media you use. Please stop posting pictures of bad barbecue and stop. If you live in another part of the country that is not known for good barbecue, please recognize that and please understand that. We we here in Texas, of course, take it very seriously and we're very high and mighty on our high horse about brisket and and barbecue but there's a reason for that because it is a better here than it is anywhere else in the world so please stop taking pictures of bad brisket and posting them on twitter do we think that lincoln riley thought it was good like that it looked good (laughs) i he probably did because i don't think he 
I don't think he posts a picture unless he thinks otherwise. And that's the thing that disappoints me is Lincoln from Texas. Lincoln <laughs> knows better. Know. He's got to know, know better. He also lives in it. He lives in a part of the country that should know better. And yeah. I, I, I think your point is is very valid that if you know you're in a part of the country that doesn't have good barbecue, then you should acknowledge that and think about that before you decide to brag about something that you've made or you're, you're, you've been served. But if you live in a part of the country that is familiar with good barbecue, you should also think about that. Absolutely. I, I, I just, it, it just pained me to see it happen, especially <laughs> a guy who's from Texas. I was like, come on, dude, <laughs> you got to know better than that. So just be mindful of how you're doing this and please go enjoy some good barbecue. Go find the really, really good barbecue joints and, and enjoy it. This is a perfect time to do it. It's, and it, it's wonderful. There's nothing like a perfectly smoked piece of meat. And if you want to call a cookout a barbecue and you're around me, that's fine. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's totally fine. Um, Well, Sam, thank you so much for joining Power Hour. This is great. We're going to have to have you back um, and go through more things Texas, more things Texas barbecue next time as well. Um, Thank you to everyone for listening to Power Hour. If you are not already an Athletic subscriber, sign up at theathletic.com slash Nicole for 40% off. Andy Staples will be back tomorrow with Ari Wasserman. Um, They will be up to their usual antics. And we will see you next Tuesday on Power Hour. For Sam Khan, I'm Nicole Auerbach, and thanks for listening. (music) 